Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the person I regard as the chief evangelist, and I'm not alone in that. He did not invent secular evangelism, but he certainly popularized it. He's the author of 15 books, including his first, The Macintosh Way, which was published more than 30 years ago and includes a chapter dedicated to evangelism. He was a software evangelist and later chief evangelist at Apple, and his resignation letter between those two roles was beautiful. He currently serves as chief evangelist at Canva, an online design and publishing tool that democratizes professional graphics. He's more than 150 episodes into his journey on the Remarkable People podcast, so we'll be sure to talk about that. He's an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and executive fellow at the Haas School of Business at Cal Berkeley. And finally, among many other things, he's a hockey player turned surfer, a car aficionado, and a joyful, funny, and family-oriented human being. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to Chief Evangelist. That's uh, quite quite the intro there. I hope I can live up to that. Man, there's so many other things I could have included, but um, it's just been a joy <laughs> to, uh, to follow your career, to follow your line of thought. You've inspired, of course, more people than you know, um, you know, even though you've racked up millions and millions of followers online. Um, and uh, it's a privilege to have you. I really appreciate you making time for it. Fire away. I'm here for you. Cool. Opening question. I've asked this to all of the folks so far. What is the most important job of a chief evangelist? Well, it starts with believing in your product or service because seriously, if the chief evangelist doesn't believe in the product or service, well, almost by definition, that person isn't the chief evangelist. So that's the core. And I truly do believe that, uh, you know, great evangelists are made, they're not born. And they are made when they encounter a product or a service that just sort of changes their life, arguably becomes their life. And so I would argue that the first and most important role of a chief evangelist is to believe. Right. And so if you don't believe, who else will? Is that the basic? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so do you feel like, I'm just thinking now on behalf of, uh, someone leading an organization who's like, do we need evangelism? Should we appoint a person? Do we need a team? Um, you know, a company like Amazon or Microsoft or Google will carry multiple evangelists at any given time. Like, what would you share with somebody who questions the value of work in that we would generally call evangelism? I think it's important to separate the term evangelism from the function. So if for some reason you don't want to call the position evangelist or chief evangelist, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter. But I would argue that most companies need a chief believer 
who proselytizes the product or service, not only to customers, but also internally. So I, you know, I can't, I can't imagine a situation where you don't need somebody in that role. Do you need to use the title evangelist? No. And, and I would argue that circa 2022, the word evangelism is tainted because it's too close to the word evangelical. So uh, I make sure people understand that I am about evangelism, not evangelicalism. That's a huge difference. Yeah, it is. It reminds me of uh, the conversation I had with my dad when he asked me about my my title change a couple of years back that led to yeah. led to these conversations. Um, talk to me about the human embodiment of this. I think a lot of people might uh, a lot of people I've talked with are like, well we have different things that we use in order to spread the message. Um, talk, you know, like internal wikis, uh, newsletters, all the social media, all the different webinars, et cetera. Talk about like the human embodiment of this passion, of the values of this sure. belief. Like, oh, I, I, you yeah. know, the, the bottom line is that you have got to get people to believe in something as much as you do. Now, from there, we diverge, and it could be a Facebook community. It could be a Twitter community. It could be in real-life meetings. It could be a Quora community. It could be Reddit. I don't care. I'm, I'm mentioning all these digital things. But it, it doesn't, you know, the Macintosh user groups, that was extremely analog. That wasn't, you know, that was, that was way before the pandemic. So the, the important thing is not for you to say, okay, I need exactly this kind of structure and this kind of function, as much as understanding that, you know, depending on your situation, what's the best mechanism to build a community of people who believe in something as much as you do? And I don't care if it's digital or rubbing two sticks together, that you just focus on the goal yeah, the it reminds me of um, just I I read the Macintosh way since I first talked to you years ago. Um, I actually have a really nice copy of it. It was um, you signed it, and it was a, a gift from one person to another, thanking uh, I think it was Maureen and Jordan from Charlie Ship uh, about a, a wonderful uh, visit to MacWorld in the Fourth Dimension uh, Developers Conference, and. Um, you talk about the cult theory versus the pyramid theory. And the interesting thing, your book, by the way, that book, which I don't know how you think about it today, I'd welcome your thoughts on that too, you know, with plenty of uh, hindsight toward it. But it reminds me a lot of a book like Seth Godin's Permission Marketing, where you lay mm -hmm. out all of these principles. And at the time, they probably, because your subtitle on it was The Art of Guerrilla Marketing, or sorry, The Art of Guerrilla Management, rather. And it seemed it was probably received as kind of progressive or even um, aggressive at the time. Maybe I'm not sure. Um, but but you look at it now and you're like, gosh, this all seems like basic, timeless wisdom. And yet you look at the way we're operating today, and we still aren't doing a lot of these things. It's so much <laughs> quite the sense. contrary. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, just so people know, uh, that book is now in the public domain. So you can easily find a file for that book and print the whole thing. So have at it. Um, 
you know, that, that was the first book that I wrote and it was about doing the right things the right way. And I thought that was the first and last book I would ever write. And I've now said that about 14 or 15 times. <laughs> so uh, that, that's a whole nother subject. And so what, what I was trying to do is I am also a business book reader and I have very specific preferences in business books. I don't want long tomes. I don't want a lot of BS. I like a lot of case studies and examples, not pontificating. And so, and I also want people to, when they read the book, underline sections, dog ear pages, so that as soon as they put the book down, they say, okay, so I got to do this. You know, this is an action item. I want people to come away from my books with action items, not just inspiration. There are plenty of inspirational books. Mine is about action or at least inspiring you to action. Yeah, the um, I guess where I want to go a little bit is when I look at your body of work and the titles and subtitles of those 15 books, you see words and phrases like art, enchantment, selling dreams, hearts and minds, art of the start, art of social media, art of changing hearts and minds and actions, art of guerrilla <laughs> management. I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of tension. I think one of the things that feel, felt wise about that and is still a tension I, that I observe today in sales marketing, revenue generation, business building, business strategy, is that there's not enough uh, appreciation for the art and the emotion sure. uh, required. And I think that's one of the things that makes evangelism uh, important and valuable, well, but also difficult to like have revenue attribution around. Well, you know, I would make the case that evangelism is primarily an analog effort. And now you may use digital means to get that analog effort going, but it is analog. And uh, I, I can't tell you that I'm a big, you know, data wonk and I'm, I'm looking at these, let's just say that I never did an A-B test to see if the blue line gets more clicks than the red line, okay? Uh, that's not evangelism. There's a role for that. Uh, but just like there's a role for your rear view mirror. So, but I'm, I want you to look out the windshield, not the rear view mirror. And there are things that uh, just data cannot indicate. Like I think data is useful to help you fix and evolve something. I don't think it's very useful to help you predict and create and innovate something. That comes from gut, vision, passion, and luck. Uh would you observe that those things are undervalued? I mean, I don't, I don't know how in touch you are with, you know, the guts of a bunch of businesses these days, but I feel like that is out of fashion and out of favor, even though we all know that that's what drives the numbers. Yeah. You mean the, uh, what's out of touch? This the we're, we're touch emotional the, like, like, analog way? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Uh, listen, I don't know if that's true statistically or scientifically. I have no, you know, I don't want to be accused of accusing data without data. <laughs> right. So I won't do it. But um, I will tell you that 
Well, listen, oh, this is going to take us down a little bit of a rat hole, but okay. You know, I don't think it's important that you have some kind of scientific data analysis about how good data is. And I think, you know, let's face it, at the, the end of the day, you want people to believe in your dream as much as you do. Now, if there are cases where the blue line draws more clicks than the red line, by all means, do A-B testing and make it a red line. But... Um, I, I think that that's easy, right? I mean, you just have to concoct an experiment. What's harder is, well, you know, do we make a retail store that just sells our product? There, there is nobody else that does that, right? Like, it, it, let, let, let's review that decision. So Apple decides to make the Apple store. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was all about large consumer good, multi-box stores, electronic stores, Fry's Electronics and yeah, Best Buy and CompUSA and all that, right? So I, I would like to see what data would tell you to create a freestanding store just to sell one brand's product. I would be astounded if there was any data, any market research, any focus group, any anything that would tell you to make that store. And as we know, the rest is history. So uh, now having had the store and operating the store, I bet data can help you understand, you know, the optimal time to open is 10 or 11 or one or whatever, and you should open on Sundays or, you know, I can understand all that, right? But the creative act of, we're gonna make a standalone store that only sells Apple stuff. And it's not gonna be a crappy looking store with cardboard boxes all over the place. And we're gonna offer technical support in the back at a bar. I mean, what quote unquote retail expert would tell you, oh, Apple, that's a great idea. I mean, you're going to just sell so much per square foot. Um, never happened. So that's, the, you know, that's the kind of thing you need to compare against. Yeah. And the other remarkable thing about it is as, as you were walking through that, I was just seeing the store uh, kind of 20 minutes from my house. Yeah. Is that the density, right? The or specifically the lack of density, right? The the product per square footage has got to be the lowest of any retail environment <laughs> I've ever uh, been in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um uh, and, and you know, it it sort of fits in with the entire aesthetic, right? And like Microsoft tried to copy the Apple store. And I don't know if you ever went into a Microsoft store. I don't know if there are any more Microsoft stores, but it was not the same kind of experience at all. That was more like a you were in Comp USA on a Saturday, you know, blue light special. Yeah, I will. Um, I'll tell you. I think I lived your nightmare. Um, it was a. <laughs> it was a. It was a. I think you'll like the story. Um, it was a joy for me. It was my first kind of professional job out of school. Someone in the central region of Microsoft uh, got funding from the other like people in the region 
to convert a 70 seat school bus into a mobile computer lab. This is like mid to late nineties. So no mm -hmm. mobile internet. It was a server in the back. And I was hired to learn how to drive the bus and to drive <laughs> it to comp USA's best buys, zoos, museums, retailers. And I had like, I had some like kids software on there. I think magic school bus was like a brand or a kind of a, <laughs> A thing that was on there, I had like monster truck racing, I had the encyclopedia, I had all the office stuff, and I would go wherever the local rep um, wanted me to go. I was in like 25 cities in the course of one year, and I didn't realize that it was a, an evangelical effort. Um, no, not you, evangelical. I, you said that? the bad word. You said evangelical. Well, I used it as an adjective, an, an, an evangelistic uh, effort. Thank you for the correction. And, uh, <laughs> and it was interesting. You were campaigning for Trump in that bus. <laughs> uh, no, that wasn't even a dream at the time. I don't even think he was a, <laughs> a, a broadcast television star yet. Um, and I, re I remember finding myself just getting hammered by hardcore technical people that like, there's a human being here. He's got a logo on. I've got a bunch of questions. I'm like, I'm just the dude driving the bus and like making friendly <laughs> with all the people, you know? And, yeah. uh, and it was, it was a really just to be on the front lines there taking heat for product concerns and product failures. And it, 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 in, in learning more about you and listening to you and watching you, you know, obviously it was not, um, I didn't have Ethan's golden touch when I got the invite, I just went. And so, um, you know, versus guys, golden touch of, committing to excellent products. Um, talk about that dynamic and how you know. I mean, is it, how do you know what to commit to? For example, how did you commit to Canva? Well, uh, I committed to Canva because someone who was helping me with graphics told me to. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want you to think that I examined hundreds of companies and, you know, with like a rifle shot, selected Canva out of the pack. Uh, Canva found me because I was using Canva's graphics and actually Peg Fitzpatrick, the woman I'm referring to, she was using Canva graphics. So they noticed that I was using their product and reached out to me. And then when they did, I asked her if that was what we were doing and using. And she said, yes. And I said, do you like it? She said, yes. I said, should I help them? And she said, yes. And the rest is history. So that's the truth of how that went down. Now, having said that, you know, you asked the question, how do you know when you, you found this great thing? And I will tell you that that is, um, that is a question that is a litmus test for one's intellectual honesty. Okay. So, if I were not an honest person, I would tell you, of course, I recognize it. I was in tech for decades and I could see the potential of this product. And I knew that the market for easy to use graphics was humongous. And I met the co-founders and I could sense they would be great entrepreneurs. And that would be total unequivocal bullshit because in my career, which started at Apple and is ending at Canva. Let's just say between those two high points, there were a lot of misfires. There were strikeouts, singles, doubles, pop flies, fall balls, just to use a baseball analogy. And so I think the truth is that 
you you dig a lot of holes and sometimes you hit oil and sometimes you hit dog poop and sometimes it's just sand and so um, I've been fortunate with with Canva and Apple but I can tell you that I'm probably if you count those two if you just did like a statistical analysis including my investments and including the companies that I ran and what they invested in, I bet you I'm two for 50. But oh, what a two. <laughs> so that's the truth. I mean, if, if listen, if I could, if I could be on this, this show and tell you exactly how to pick winners, A, I would be full of shit. But B, I just, well, if I could truly do that, I would not tell you how to do it because I would want to keep that skill just for myself. The truth is you dig a lot of holes and some holes end up spurting oil. And, and that's a bad analogy now because oil is, you know, carbon-based is killing the world. Uh, you see, what's another? You you take a lot of shots. I know. I know. Okay. Okay. So I must, I surf a lot. So I'll say, you know, if you never paddle for a wave, you will never catch a wave. If you paddle for every wave, you'll be exhausted. So you paddle for waves that you think will work and you still don't catch them all, but you have to paddle and you have to be willing to miss. And now after you've had a good ride, if somebody says, well, how'd you know that wave was going to be a good wave? You can lie and say, well, it's my years of surfing experience. Or you could say, hey, I don't know. I turned around, I paddled <laughs> and I caught the wave. That's more the truth. Yeah. And it's really all we have. And I appreciate the call to, to intellectual honesty and the basic integrity of it. And especially in this kind of role where, you know, it isn't just your passion, it isn't just your excitement that's conveyed to others through speaking and direct engagement and the, uh, the, the other analog aspects of communicating the opportunity. Um, it's also the credibility and the trust. I mean, uh, speak to trust in general. Like when I say the word trust, what does that mean to you? Well, it's hard to be a chief evangelist if you're not trustworthy, right? Because, and, and it starts off with where we started the show. So, yeah, I loved Macintosh. I love Canva. And it's very easy for me to evangelize both products because I truly believe in it, them, not it. And so, you know, by contrast, I think it's very hard to take an evangelist from one product and put him or her on another one. So... You know, if Bill Gates had called me up back in the mid 80s and said, listen, guy, leave Apple, become an evangelist for Windows. Hard to imagine I would have succeeded because I just hated Windows. <laughs> I didn't believe in Windows. So, I mean, like I said, you got to believe in what I mean, life is too short to be selling crap you don't believe in. So that, that's the start. Now, but having said that, don't get me wrong, as I just alluded to, you can believe in something and still be wrong. As I said, I'm two for 50. Every time I squeeze the trigger, I believed in what I did. 48 out of 50 times I was wrong. 
<laughs> and what do you think it is about those misses? I mean, uh, obviously you are, you know, your belief, let's just say, let's take any of those misses in that, in that set, your passion, your belief, like what, what prevents some of those from reaching success? I mean, obviously sure. it's so, somewhere in the execution or maybe you're yeah. an N of one and you need an N of a thousand and you like, yeah, you know, failure has many fathers. Um, one of the, I think more common ones and one of the ones that perhaps you can avoid if you hear about it now is that you yourself are not a user of the product, but you have intellectually convinced yourself that such a market exists. For example, um, let's suppose that you are approached by a company that makes software for accountants, okay? Uh, this is a, the most boring example I could think of. But anyway, so, so, uh, so you, you know, you, you listen, you look at the demo, you see all that and you say, huh, I can see where there needs to be a powerful, easy, beautiful, you know, well-documented, well-supported, bug-free accounting software. So yeah, I'm gonna go join that company. I believe that company has lots of potential except you're not an accountant. You're not gonna use that software. You're not gonna breathe that software. You know, I use Canva. I use Canva for all my presentations. God knows I use Macintosh for everything, right? So when you are in a position where you yourself are not a user, but you have conceptualized the fact that there are people who will use this, I would say that at least a little warning buzzer should go off that, you know, guy, you're not an accountant. You don't really know <laughs> if accountants want this. So that's, that's something that is preventable, I think. And yeah, I made that mistake several times in my career. I convinced myself that surely a market like this exists, even though I'm not the market. Talk to me about like the, it, that surprises me a little bit only because of how clearly you wrote about user groups and some of your language around it, like from early on, the idea of sending executives in, being approachable, wearing t-shirts, not ties, um, focusing on who's in the room, not how many are in the room, treating it like a long-term investment rather than just like a one-off event. Like this, this customer intimacy is obviously key to success for validating instincts. Um, talk a little bit about that direct customer contact. And I guess for me, well, I'm, I'm worrying or wondering about doing it digitally. I mean, you hear a lot of talk about community building, but I think there's something powerful about the direct human interaction. Well, I mean, listen, right now we're conducting a digital interview, right? But I mean, it feels pretty analog. So we're talking one-on-one, -on -one. we're looking into each other's eyes and, and you and I both know that I'm looking into a camera, you're looking into a camera, you're speaking to a mic, I'm speaking to a mic, but it feels more analog than digital. It's not like we're using AI <laughs> to, to have this conversation between our two bots, right? And so I, th I think when you truly believe in something, 
you take such pleasure in demonstrating it and evangelizing and selling it that it is not a burden to do what we're doing. And I, I, I think that is also a very good test that you almost cannot help yourself evangelize something that you truly love. And I would also make the case that, you know, you, you know it's true evangelism when it's not simply your benefit. So listen, by, by getting you to use Canva or back then to use a Macintosh, it was good for Guy, right? Because I was an Apple employee. I am a Canva employee. So it's good for the companies that I work for. But I also truly do believe that Canva will help you democratize design and be a better communicator. And I truly do believe to this day that Macintosh would make you more creative and productive. And so an evangelist not only has his best interests at heart, but the other person's best interests at heart. And th that is not true of many forms of sales. Let's just say many forms of sales, you want your quota, your commission, your bonus. You're not telling someone to buy something because it's good for them. You're telling them to buy something because it's good for you. That's a, that's a major difference. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Yes, interesting. I uh, in the second book that I co-authored with uh, my longtime friend and team member and my CMO at BombBomb, uh, Steve Passanelli. It's the yellow one over my shoulder here. Uh, <laughs> we included uh, Dan Tyre, who's the sixth employee and the first salesperson at HubSpot. And years ago, he wrote a call, uh, post approximately around the idea of um, always be closing is dead. It's about always be helping, and uh, and so it really. This divide here, it feels like the more progressive people know intuitively that the best way, and th there are old cliches around this. I'm sure you have one um, that you've encountered yourself of like, you know, the more we help other people, the more, or the more we give people what they want, the more likely we are to get what we want. Um, you know, this idea of giving to get, the more you give, the more you get, it's true of love and all of these other things uh, <laughs> that we need and want in our lives. It really is. And it's, we all know that it's intuitively true, but somehow in a business context, it escapes us as like real behavior. I, yeah. And that's sad because I, I truly do believe that the rising tide floats all boats and that life can be a win-win. And I just interviewed someone named uh, Barry Nailbuff, for my podcast, he's a professor of psychology. And you know, he, he said, first of all, uh, give the other person what they want. Because if you give them what they want, then you can get what you want. Think about that. And he also said, fight fire with water, not fire. You're trying to put out fires, not create more fires. And so it's, it's thinking like that 
And I would also throw in the big E word, which is empathy, which is now there's I think there's two levels of empathy. So there's the Toyota form of empathy, which is go and see. Go and see means you know you go to your service department and you see what people are encountering to book an appointment, to drop off their car, to wait for an oil change. Uh, you go and see what it's like driving a minivan with a baby seat in the back and, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. But I think there's a better level, which is go and be. So you are actually the driver of the minivan and your baby is in the back seat and you are taking your Sienna in for service. You're not watching Joe or Jane Doe bring their Sienna you, you yourself are going to the dealer website, you're booking an appointment, you're showing up there, you're seeing how long you wait in line, you see how long they take to process you, they see that, you know, the shuttle comes once an hour, and you're waiting there for 59 minutes. And so I think that it's not limited to good evangelism, I just think it's good, just customer relations in general. Absolutely. And it ties back to what you just shared. It's go and see what accountants think versus go and be an accountant. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's true. It's true empathy. It's not imagining it. It's experiencing it. Um, you mentioned your podcast. So let's just go there for a couple of minutes. Like for folks listening, it's, it's Guy Kawasaki's remarkable people. And some of those remarkable people include Neil deGrasse Tyson, Gary Vaynerchuk, Dr. Jane Goodall, Mark Benioff, Bob Cialdini, who I think you already mentioned in our conversation here, <laughs> Dr. Viv Murthy, um, Margaret Atwood. I mean, just remarkable people. <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned that you're over 150 uh, episodes into this journey. What is it about for you? What was the spark? And um, yeah, where are you going with it? What's the motivation? Well, there's two answers to that question. <laughs> Which one do you want to hear? The truth? I want the one of that's basically the gilded story. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the gilded story first. Okay. The gilded story is that I really want to help people become remarkable. Becoming remarkable is a long, painful process. And I think that with my decades of experience and my connections and access, and my ability to formulate good questions, I can help bring out the remarkableness of people like you mentioned, so that other people can be inspired and learn from them. So this is a very high calling, and it is in fact the best work I've done in my career, truly, by far the best work I've done in my career. So that's the gilded version. <laughs> Another version is that when I was finishing a book called Wise Guy, I basically accepted every podcaster's interview request because you just never know, right? So you want to be in as many podcasts as possible. And when I was doing these podcast interviews, I got to asking some business podcasters, so just how does podcasting work? And, I, and they said, well, so we do, you know, 52 of these a year, we record them, and then we sell advertising. I said, well, how much advertising do you sell? I said, well, we sell pre-roll, mid-roll, and post-roll. I said, well, how much do you get for those roles? And he said, well, the pre-roll is 25 grand, 
the mid roll is 15 grand and the post roll is 10 grand. So I'm not a math major, but I can add that up and get, you know, 50 or whatever it is. So I'm sitting there and thinking, so you're telling me that you make 50 grand per episode, you do 52 episodes a year, that's 2.6 million or whatever it is. Is that what you're telling me? And they say, yep. And I says, so why am I writing a book one every once every four years, killing myself? You get an advance. You never get more than the advance. From the time you write the book to the time it's out is 12 to 18 months. So, I mean, imagine if you wrote a book before the pandemic and you shipped it in the pandemic and you said, well, you need to focus on person-to-person -person meetings. Oops. <laughs> so there were so many advantages to podcasting that I said, man, I got to try this podcasting thing. And the rest is history. Um, it is, I, the Japanese have a word, ikigai, and it, it means, you know, what is your true calling? What is your true passion and mission in life? Well, what would you do regardless of the compensation just for the pure love of it? And podcasting is my ikigai. Now, you can get different ikigais in various stages of life. Parenting can be ikigai, teaching, coaching. So it's not just about, you know, podcasting or writing or making samurai swords. It can be whatever you, it could be cooking, that's your ikigai. Uh, but podcasting is my ikigai. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that, uh, that you peeked behind the scenes of it and decided to commit to it. Uh, for folks listening, we you may have noticed we don't have pre-roll, mid-roll, and post-roll ads in general, and this is not that. <laughs> Neither kind of do I. Show. Uh, but for me, it's it's same thing. It's been the it's been I would call it one of the greatest joys of my career, which is yep. not young, and um, it's primarily because it's relationship based. I get to learn so much, and that you know, even if there weren't thousands of listeners. Um, it would still be useful in co-creating and sharing um, information yeah, I hear you. with you other know, people. Um, I have not been able to sell pre, mid, and post roles. I had a sponsor for a while, the Remarkable Tablet Company, sponsoring the Remarkable Podcast, which worked out very well. So that lasted a few years, but you know, all sponsorships come to an end, right? And uh, so. I don't have a sponsor. I have no revenue for my podcast. It's just if if I did a PL for my podcast, it's all L's L right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, it is an expensive process because um, I don't know how you do yours, but there's probably for each hour of the podcast, there's probably 15 or 20 hours of work into it editing, sound design, you know, design of all the stuff that goes with it, the marketing of it. There's 15 hours probably. And so 15 hours at any reasonable rate, it's a lot of times 52. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, and I have, uh, I've come to the conclusion that my podcast will not be fully appreciated until I die. I, well, I don't know that that's true, but it's, it is, interest, <laughs> it is interesting when we look at people's lives and careers and bodies of work, and yours is certainly remarkable. Um, there are aspects of it. I mean, who knows how these things will go again? Like I just mentioned, like, um, 
the Macintosh way relative to permission marketing, where I still point people to it and say, there is mm -hmm. still a lot to be learned here. I just interviewed on the other podcast I host called the Customer Experience Podcast. I interviewed a gentleman named Todd Capone, who refers to himself playfully as a sales historian. And he's gone back and unearthed these sales books and sales magazines from the early 1900s, back when it was a highly respected profession. <laughs> and, uh, um, and it's really interesting. You said, if you just covered up, you know, the publication date and some of these other things, and you maybe adjusted some of the language, it's still just as relevant and useful today. Yeah. And just like I'm thinking about your book and, and, and Seth Godin's book well, that I mentioned, it's still not being followed even though it's like- it <laughs> Well, think about, for example, you know, the, the great example of what you just cited is probably Dale Carnegie, mm -hmm. right? How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was written in the 30s, 1930s, not 1830s, 1930s. So, uh, and has that really changed? Uh, you know, well, obviously you can use digital methods to- influence people, but the principles are the same. Yeah. And I think, um, and to your point earlier about Zoom, I mean, it is the next best approximation. There's a reason that video is so effective in general. Um, and it is that um, eye to eye, face to face, this idea that the transfer of emotion, kind of the underlying principles of evangelism and yeah. at some level sales. Um, but you know what? I think I think it's very important for your uh, viewers and listeners to understand that uh, how, are they going to see both audio and video, or do some just listen to audio? How does it how does it break out? Everybody yeah, sees everything. What I've seen recently, like kind of at a um, at a higher level, like beyond your show or mine, is that. Um, People who've been listening to podcasts, I forget exactly what the cut point was, but they identified a cut point of like, people who've been listening to podcasts for uh, 18 to 24 months or longer are generally audio listeners, primarily in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But there's this newer group that have migrated in as podcasting has continued to grow uh, that, that are watching and listening on YouTube. And in some cases, when I've talked with some of those people like, oh yeah, I, I consume all my podcasts on YouTube. They're oftentimes just listening and not watching, which I don't get, but yeah. it's uh, it, it's a little bit of, it's both and, and the, the, the people that have been trained, this becomes an interesting thing about media theory too. And I've seen it like, you know, a lot of people treated email early on, like they were yeah. like, it was direct mail, right? Like I have the address. I'm just yeah. sending as much crap to this as I want, you know? Um, and I think uh, the same way as, as we start as, as I, as someone who's been listening to podcasts for several years, um, view it as something that I do on my iPhone with my earbuds. I can't imagine myself sitting down and watching a podcast on YouTube, but yet, you know, people that are, um, yeah. have different well, expectations. Think, yeah. You know, people have to understand if they're watching this and hopefully they're seeing that it is not, it's not analog, but it certainly isn't sort of rote AI kind of digital coldness right and and they need to understand that if you want to be an effective evangelist you need to be able to be effective on zoom and teams and you know whatever whatever platform you want to use but it is a skill to be evangelistic using zoom it's it doesn't come naturally 
And, uh, but, you know, it's a skill to be evangelistic and effective in general. So this is just one more skill you have to acquire to be effective these days, unless you believe that we're never going to have a pandemic or virus again, which if you believe that, yeah, I got some, I got some beachfront property to sell you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, of course, about to be swallowed by the ocean. So, um, <laughs> so it's interesting. I want, I want to bounce two ideas off you and thank you so much for okay. your, for your time with me. One is, uh, and it's kind of right in the zone that you were just in and like the skills of evangelism, but it's also the skills of, um, being successful in life and in business, uh, be beyond evangelism. You know, I, I often remind people, especially younger people, that it's not about finding your voice, that your voice isn't around the corner waiting to be discovered. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't find your voice, you develop it. And that's kind of what I heard you say. I mean, it, it's, it is about, so I'd love for you from your own like reflection and experience as someone who's written 15 books and someone who has become, um, you know, confident on stage, confident yeah. on camera, <sighs> confident in the podcast format, talk about developing your voice versus finding your voice like yeah do you buy, well, do you buy what i'm saying I, I don't know if you'll agree with this but um i am repulsed by the people who are seeking to build a personal brand who um are trying to write white papers to position themselves as thought leaders write books to do that also and and i'll cite you an extreme example, and that is Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs is basically the mother of all thought leaders, visionaries, gurus, and leaders, right, ever, maybe. And I will tell you that I would be astounded if he ever sat around and said to himself, how do I position myself as a thought leader? I, you know, that, that just does not compute. And so how did Steve Jobs attain this position of being a visionary thought leader, guru, legend, God, you know, whatever? And the simple answer is he made good shit. So, my conclusion is make good shit and everything else follows. So rather than trying to write a white paper and convince people that you are so smart and a visionary and innovative and blah, 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 why don't you just make something great? I, I also, I don't know him, I've never even met him, and it's not clear that I agree with everything he does, but I kind of find it hard to believe that Elon Musk is sitting around saying, how can I position myself as a thought leader? And, and I would make the, the argument that if you see somebody who has hired someone to help with personal branding and thought leadership and ghostwriting, they are basically a fake they are trying to make something out of nothing. You know, 
why don't you just make a great product? And I'm being facetious. It's not easy to make a great product. But I'm telling you, if you make a great product or a great service or you create a great company, you will never have to worry about your personal brand. <laughs> your personal brand will drop from heaven like mana. Yeah, it's interesting. As soon as you introduce Steve Jobs' name, I the, the thing that came to mind is action and force of will. Like we're going to do this and it will speak for itself at some level. Um, and that, you know, the cult will form, not that it can't be stoked through yeah. evangelism. Yes. Um, but, but I, but I heard immediately or what the way I was receiving it was like, it's about action, not about words. And, and the same thing is like, it's not about the claims that we make. It's about the experience that we deliver for people. That is the realization of any, like, and any discrepancy between the claims we make and what people actually experience is uh, to the degree that it's not as good as the claims we made, which is 99% of the time, uh, to the degree that there is a discrepancy, um, that that speaks louder than anything we'd ever say. Well, you know, all you have to do is make good shit. <laughs> cool. Last question. Uh, well, two, two, two final questions. For you, um, when you were uh, a tech evangelist, chief evangelist, your chief evangelist today, what do you see as the future of this? Like in terms of, and you were already great off the top in terms of it doesn't need to be called this. It could be a bit, but what is the future of evangelism in a business context? Well, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a world where you don't need to get people to believe in something as much as you do. Whether that's business, politics, religion, the environment, you've, I mean, you know, they say it always be closing. Maybe it should be always be evangelizing. Um, you have got to get people to believe in yourself and you, you, what you do and your product and service as much as you do. And I, I can't, I guess maybe someday in the meta verse, you know, where your avatar is going to be convincing Mark Zuckerberg's avatar to believe in something, I guess maybe. I do have one more. Besides Canva, besides Macintosh, what is something that you're accused of or you feel yourself uh, evangelizing just in the normal course of your day-to-day -day life? Oh, okay. We're going to go down another rat hole right now. Okay, okay so... Um, believe it or not, you may not have noticed, but I am practically deaf. Now, well, first question is, did you notice? Did you see how, you know, okay. And the reason why you didn't notice is because about two months ago, I got a cochlear implant. So this side is basically deaf. This side is about 70% deaf. But in this side is a cochlear implant. And the way the cochlear implant works is it's now streaming audio from my computer, not into a headphone that's going and, you know, affecting the eardrum and the hair cells. My cochlear implant works like it takes sound and transfers it directly to the audio nerve. Okay, so in other words, I have a direct line 
none of this none of this inner middle ear stuff and so I, I will tell you that cochlear implant is a life changing technology we would the the best case for us doing this pre cochlear implant is that I would have used Zoom running on Chrome and Chrome doing the live transcription. And I use that as a backup when I conduct my podcasts. But quite frankly, God's honest truth, I forgot to set it up today. So usually I would have a strip that whenever you talk, it live transcribes via Chrome. I forgot to do that today. And until I just thought of it, I didn't even realize I forgot that. And it's all because of this cochlear implant. So if any of you, now hearing aids can help people who just need the sound made louder. But if your inner ear is kind of dead like mine, no matter how loud you make it on this side, it ain't gonna help. So if you're that kind of deaf, a cochlear implant is a life-changing technology. And I'll tell you one more, okay? You please. So there is a drink, and I'm not gonna get all woo-woo and tell you to get, you know, CBD, THC, alfalfa, organic, non-GMO stuff, okay? This is, it's a drink called Liquid Death, which is the world's greatest name. And Liquid Death comes in cans that looks like hardcore beer cans, but it's just plain water or fruit-flavored water. But it is in cans. So the way I discovered this is that about seven or eight months ago, my my wife and I, I mean, we just looked at how much plastic we were generating because we used to buy bottled water, right? And I read about how unrecyclable bottled water is, whereas aluminum is completely recyclable. And so I said, recyclable. we got to get off plastic and we got to get onto aluminum. But all the drinks like... Uh, LaCroix and all that. We didn't like the fuzz, the fizziness or the taste or whatever. And so I go on Amazon and I search for water in aluminum cans or something and up pops liquid death. And I try liquid death and it's delicious and it's in aluminum cans and the cans look like beer cans so that when you're drinking it at a party, especially if you have teenage kids, if they're drinking liquid death at a party, everybody at the party think, oh, this guy's hardcore chugging beer and he's drinking water. And that's a key selling point. So I am now an unofficial evangelist for liquid death. Love it. We'll see if we can't get them to sponsor Remarkable. <laughs> Somehow it's not as good as the Remarkable tablet. We'll see if we can make that work. Uh, Guy, you've been super generous with your time. I really, really appreciate it. For folks who want to follow up, they want to check out your books, your podcast or anything else. Where would you send people? You know what? I'm telling you again, my best work is my podcast. Just go to remarkablepeople.com. That's that. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, it's good for me, although I'm not monetizing it, but it 
truly will help you become a remarkable person. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it and continued success to you in all things. Thank you. And um, thank you for spreading the word of evangelism. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N, E-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.